Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Hello and welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. Today's focus is the Richmond, Virginia market. Richmond is the capital city in the state of Virginia. And the Richmond Metropolitan Statistical Area, the MSA, is the 44th largest in the United States. It includes independent cities such as Richmond, Colonial Heights, Hopewell, I believe that's how you pronounce it, Petersburg, as well as a number of surrounding counties. Now, the population of the Richmond Metropolitan Statistical Area is very close to 1.3 million people and a growing international community adds to the area's cultural diversity and cosmopolitan character. It's really a metropolitan area that is strong, vibrant, and growing. Richmond's economy is primarily driven by law and finance and government, with federal, state, and local government agencies located there, as well as a notable legal and banking firms, multiple legal and banking firms in the downtown area. Now, the city is home to both a U.S. Court of Appeals one of 13 such courts, and a Federal Reserve Bank, one of 12 such banks. Also, Dominion Energy and Westrock are there, Fortune 500 500 companies, I may add. And there are many others in the metropolitan area adding to the economic diversity. Now, as far as regional trends, population growth has been very positive. It's grown by about 2% over the last two years, putting it in the top 80% nationally. Job growth has been over 4% over the last two years, again, putting it in the top 80% nationally. Income trends have been strong over the last two years. Incomes have increased over 5.6%. Unemployment trend is also very strong, dropping about 1%, just over 1% over the last two years, again, putting it that market in the top 80%. And that market continues to add housing units, which are needed and has a very low vacancy trend. So there is strong demand for rentals. In wrapping up also, I'll just point out that in the last 12 months, that market has seen about a 4.5% appreciation growth. So it is a fairly strong market. I would call it a growth market when you're at that 5% range. But what's interesting is the last two years has seen over 14% appreciation, putting it in the top of the country. So really, this is in the top 10% of appreciating markets, or at least has been for the last 10 years, and very much so in the last five. So I don't expect that to continue in any market this year around the country, just primarily because of the coronavirus thing and the effect on the economy that it has had. But when we bounce back, we tend to bounce back pretty strong. So I am very excited and bullish about this market. Last but not least, just in terms of national rankings, the median house cost in this market is 68%. That means compared to all markets across the United States, this is in the 68% mark. Cash flow potential for this market is very strong. It's at 79% in terms of a national ranking. So it's pretty much in the top 20%. And rent growth has been very strong, certainly above the midway point at 57%. So it is also a strong rental growth market. 
Well, with me today is Frank. He is one of our fantastic new providers in the Richmond, Virginia metropolitan area, and we are very excited to have him on. I've known Frank for many years, and he's just a real solid guy, and it puts out great product. And it wasn't only until recently that we've been able to get product or inventory from them. So we're excited to be working with them. We've already got many clients working with us and with them and his team on the ground. So things are rolling along. So Frank, welcome to the show. Marco, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you on because we really want to get the Richmond, Virginia market exposed. And my investment counselors here have been saying, hey, yeah, let's get Frank on. We've got to talk about Richmond because we got to educate the investors out there. So let's talk about Richmond. Richmond is an interesting city because it's so old. It has a lot of rich history as far as the United States is concerned. And you obviously live there and obviously like it. Tell us a little bit about Richmond, Virginia, and what's it like? Sure. So I was born in New England. I grew up in Florida. And the way that I ended up in Richmond is I lived in Northern Virginia, which is a commuter town. D.C. is cool, but Northern Virginia isn't. I lived in Charlottesville for a while, for about seven years. It's kind of a small, cute college town in the middle of the mountains. And I moved to Richmond for a couple of very specific reasons. I already had my business, and Charlottesville was too small. There wasn't enough volume in Charlottesville, but there was a ton of volume in Richmond. And I was single at the time, and I was in my late 30s, and I was in a college town. I was in the wrong place. So I moved to Richmond because it's a vibrant place that attracts young people. So... I've chosen to live here because it's a great southern town. You don't hear about it like a Charleston or an Austin. It's not nearly as expensive. It has no traffic. It's got great people, and it's got a lot of really cool things. You mentioned the history. It's got great history. It's got great rivers. It's known as River City in some ways because there's a river that cuts through, so you can go kayaking and walking and hiking. I've got an 18-month-old my wife and I take for a walk all the time along the river. It's just a really cool city that attracts young professionals. It's a great spot to be. It's not a lot of traffic, and it's still close. We can be in D.C. in 90 minutes. We can be in the mountains. We can be to the beach. But it's kind of a really cool, small, southern city that's nestled on the Atlantic seaboard. Nice. So I'm an investor. I live in whatever state. I'm in California, and I'm now looking at Richmond for the first time. From a very high level, why would I want to invest in Richmond, Virginia? Give me kind of the Cliff Notes overview. Here's the best reason to invest here. We're a diverse market. We can bring you product at sub 100,000 and we have product in our market that sells for a couple million, three, four million. Now, we're not California. You can't buy like a $5 million condo here, but it's a diverse market and it's a diverse market and this is what makes it great. The lower end stuff, the 80 to 150,000 is kind of in the path of progress. You don't have to go to like somewhere with a pocket knife to get a $150,000 house like you do in California. It's three, four, seven blocks away from where it's vibrant and it's renovated. So we can provide incredible returns and really good property backed with Section 8 rents. And right now, while we're recording this, that's hugely important because our people are all paying because the government is paying a lot of their rents. And it's several blocks from the path of progress. So if you're an investor who just wants returns, you can get that with us. If you're an investor who wants appreciation to potentially sell, you have that as well. If you don't mind appreciation, but you don't want to sell, but it's always nice to kind of have that in your back pocket, that's the beauty. It's not like we're just factioned off like, you know, we're on the other side of Crenshaw in LA. It, like our stuff is very close to a $400,000 house. And that's what makes it so attractive for me. We own hundreds of units ourselves. 
And I've had stuff double, triple, quadruple in four to seven years because of the fact that the market's been great, but the neighborhoods that we invest in are great. And that's how this place is kind of built. Nice. So I always consider the condition of the economy and what makes up the local economy because I don't like markets that are solely focused on one or two industries like oil and gas, for example. So what makes up the local economy there just in broad strokes? I wasn't all that great as a student in fourth and fifth grade, but state capitals, Richmond is the state capital. So it's a huge tourism draw because of the fact that we were the home of the Confederacy in the Civil War. So there's a lot of rich history. But into the 21st century with the state capital, we have medical, a lot of medical. We have a lot of financial services, Bank of America, SunTrust. Capital One is the biggest employer in the marketplace. There's a lot of banking and servicing. Amazon has got a huge presence here now. This used to be the tobacco home of the world. So it used to be called Philip Morris, but now it's Altria. They're big. So we've got a diverse makeup of big employers. The healthcare system is really big here. As I mentioned before, there's universities, but then there's offshoots where there's really good medical colleges. So we have a lot of high paying jobs. If you look at the median income, it's not California median, but like our median income is at or above national average. And we have a lot of educated people that will move here. But then there's a service sector of this market that's huge. And these are a lot of state jobs. So these people don't get affected the way they have in a lot of the other markets. They're not restaurant workers in a lot of instances. They're people with decent jobs. They're retaining their jobs. And we backstop it, like I said, with Section 8. So that's what's so beautiful about it. You've got good employers, but we also have you know working class folks that do a lot of renting from us as well. And it kind of balances out the market. Nice. Yeah, I know Richmond is primarily driven, as far as I know, by law, finance, and government. But of course, you've got all kinds of other sectors and industries there. You even have, supposedly, from what I read, a huge biotechnology research park. And I don't know if that's a new thing or if that's been around for quite a while. It's on the cusp. It's new-ish. But it's actually located on Capital One's campus is where a lot of it takes place. And there's other things that come to it. As I mentioned, I grew up in Florida, and this is relevant for this reason. I moved to the D.C. metro market in 1998. So I've lived in the state of Virginia for 22 years. CNBC usually ranks the business-friendly states, and Virginia is always on the top of that list, like usually top 10, many times top five. You asked about like kind of research triangles about three hours south of us with uh, like Durham and that area. But the D.C. metro market, which is 90 minutes north, has a lot of government contracting, and the Dulles Corridor has got tons of IT, tons. It's two to three times more expensive to be up there from the cost of a house. The commute is awful. So what we have seen is a lot of migration of these businesses come 90 minutes south, and their employees can live at a much lower rate, and they can offer satellite offices here that will report up to the bigger offices, and that's where a lot of that tech comes from is it's a Northern Virginia influence, but it's just so much less expensive for office space and for staff to be. So that's part of our growth. All right, great. Well, let's talk about the areas and the neighborhoods that you focus on because neighborhoods are very important. And generally speaking, they can range from your low-income C-class neighborhoods to the higher-income A-class neighborhoods. What kind of neighborhoods are you guys focused on and why? Okay, so I think it all starts with our product, right? I mentioned it several times. Our bread and butter is a three-bed, one-bath, rents for right around 1300 bucks a month. Bread and butter all day long, we can rent those things in minutes. We got a waiting list for people who want to move into them. We're going to talk about what we do with the product in a couple of minutes, but we go to places where that stuff makes sense. 
I kind of tongue in cheek said, you don't need a pocket knife to go where we go. I moved from Florida to Virginia, and it's kind of moving through a time machine backwards. Florida's planned area, kind of like Arizona is and California is. Those were planned. Like Virginia, it felt like there was like a path which someone like walked through first, took a machete to second, rode a horse through third, and they said, screw it, let's just pave it. So that's kind of how it all is. There's just a ton of sprawl. So there's $100,000 houses seven, eight blocks away for million-dollar houses. So we try and find the neighborhoods that are nestled properly, that are in the path of progress. And it's not very hard to tell. So if you look at like Phoenix, Arizona and Richmond, Virginia, geographically, it looks very different. But this is why working with a partner like us makes so much sense. We know the market. We know the places to not go and we know the places to go. And we've been doing this on our own, as I mentioned, for well over a decade. So we pick the right places where the product and the neighborhood all kind of jive. Running to people like Marco and me, we're pains in the asses. You do not want to rent to us. You want to rent to a professional renter who understands what it's like to be a good tenant and who likes to be a tenant, who doesn't have aspirations to be homeowners. So what we do is we pick neighborhoods where people want to go and want to stay, and they want to stay in that property. We've been doing this particular model for coming up on five years. We retain 90 plus percent of our residents. That's a big number. If you're going to buy a property from us, you want someone to turn, you want someone to be in the property year over year. So the property has got to be right. So too does the neighborhood. So we pick those things kind of in conjunction with one another so we don't turn over our tenants regularly. So on that note, can you just touch on the demographics a little bit? Like who or what type of person are in these neighborhoods that you're talking about? Sure. This is working class stuff. Every now and again, you're going to see like a Tesla or a Mercedes Benz park there. But like by and large, you're going to see workmen like vans. You're going to see, you know, it's working class folks. Like most of these people probably make somewhere between thirty-five and $50,000 a year. The people who really rent from us, and I've said this multiple times in Section 8, they qualify for a voucher. Usually it's a single person with a couple of kids, or maybe it's a stack family where there might be a grandparent or like an aunt or an uncle living there as well. But that's kind of who our bread and butter is. We do a really good job for these folks, though. We have folks that look and sound like them who come to the houses. We have people who live in similar neighborhoods that work for us who you know provide maintenance. So if you can qualify, we're going to rent it to you. But we're really good at kind of reading the tea leaves to make sure that you know you look good on paper, but you're actually going to perform. It's not that you look good on paper and you need default. So we're pretty good with that. But like I said, we don't discriminate. We take a good qualified candidate who we think will pay the rent. And like literally, I think it's 93% renew year over year. So we're pretty good at filtering that out. So you mentioned Section 8. Now I kind of have a two-part question. First of all, how many of the tenants that you ultimately place are Section 8 as a percentage? Between 85 and 90%. Okay. That's through our whole portfolio. Yeah, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to confirm that. And of course, people listening to this have never heard any of this for the first time. So just to go off on a tangent here for a minute, people have mixed feelings about Section 8. Most people either love it or hate it. And there's a very small amount of people who are kind of in between and, and indifferent. Maybe take a minute and just talk about Section 8. First of all, real quick, what is it? Just so people know what we're talking about when we're talking about Section 8 tenants. And why do you use Section 8? Why do you like Section 8? When I say we're roughly 90%, we own a small apartment building and some other things. And globally, we have about 300 units. Of those 300, it's right about 90% that are subsidized. That's what Section 8 is in its grandest form. 
it's some level of helping people with affordable housing or allowing folks that can't get a property to get them into something so they can stand on their own two feet. Now, I say Section 8 when I use the 90% number, but what we use is we use not-for-profits and other folks as well that are in our local market who have housing programs or housing vouchers. So these are people who are grateful for a home, and they've been qualified in some form or fashion. So with Section 8, they've got their own hoops they've got to jump through, but if it's with one of our we have a local church who literally has run probably 15 houses from us, and they have their own criteria. But these are people who are thrilled to have a nice house. And we're going to talk product. We renovate our homes to a standard. Some of these homes are older, like right around World War II in the 40s, 50s, 60s. So we make sure we've appointed them so when they move in, the electric bills aren't too expensive, that they can afford to live there. And these are the small things that a lot of people don't do. There are slumlords in every market. We're not that. We like to provide a sense of real pride of rentership so people move in and people will stay. Now, let me ask you this question because I can answer it my way, but I'm more curious from your perspective. And I've, of course, heard it. Like when you say there's negative connotations around Section 8, like what are the negative connotations that you've heard? I think the two biggest reasons are one is the bureaucracy and red tape involved with Section 8 when you actually have a tenant move out. You have to turn it over, have it inspected. Sometimes if you have a bad inspector, they come in and they nitpick a bunch of things and you have to go back and address those things. Even if they're low cost, ticky tacky stuff, it just wastes time that you could be marketing the property and placing a tenant. That's been my personal experience on a few properties. And I believe that's why other investors just don't like Section 8. They love it when the tenant's placed because the income comes in like clockwork. It's sent by the government, not by the tenant. And so it's a beautiful thing once you have the tenant placed. But the turnover is really sometimes slow. And I know this is really market by market by market. That's probably the biggest reason for the dislike for Section 8. The benefits obviously are there. Sometimes Section 8 pays more than market rent. And so you get a little bit of a bumper premium and it comes in like clockwork. This is anecdotal. I think the second and maybe the only other reason why some people dislike Section 8 is that this probably relates to personal experience. But I think for some people, because of the demographic of the Section 8 tenant, they've just had a bad experience when the tenant has moved out and they've left a bunch of trash and maybe, you know, some damage and stuff. They're not the type of demographic that you're going to find in a premium A-class neighborhood. So it's probably a little bit of a messier turnover. So I'm going to address both parts of this. The inspections first, and I'll deal with kind of the tenant second. So on the inspection side, we renovate our homes to a standard where the inspections are not hard to pass. Now, do we fail some? Of course, like we might miss grounding an outlet or there could be a problem, but it's usually minor stuff. Section 8 in our market usually inspects annually. We have a relationship with them where they usually inspect our stuff every other year because we have such a good record. So if there's a turnover and you become a private owner, they might inspect it. Like this is minor stuff. Inspection is usually a couple hundred dollars to fix. So it's a low barrier of entry. And like I said, our stuff's renovated to withstand these types of inspections year over year. It goes from a speed bump to almost flat road because we've tread this ground so many times in the past. So we don't see that as a major issue. The tenants, this is something that I hear a lot. And if you didn't bring it up, I was going to just volunteer it. Yes, people in the Section 8 program are probably there for a reason. They're not me. They're not Marco. A lot of these people are professional renters. And when I say professional renter, they've been renters since Ronald Reagan was in office a long time. That's okay. 
if you know how to deal with it. And our entire system knows how to deal with this. We do not do A-class stuff. We do C and B stuff, and we have a lot of these types of tenants. Now, we can stretch into the A neighborhoods, but we're built for this. Our property manager understands and speaks this language incredibly well. If you do not speak the language or work well with Section 8, this can be a massive hassle. Not for us, and we offer property management to deal directly with these folks. The woman who works for us that runs our Heads Up, our rental division, she's been in property management in and around Richmond for 25 years. She knows everybody over there, so it's a really smooth process. They put us towards the top of the list because they know that when we bring in a property, we're ready. We're not going to waste their time. We're not going to waste their effort. Like I said, we do fail every now and again, but by and large, we're ready to go. And the tenant is able to move in, and they like that. They're collaborative with us. The Section 8 office will say, hey, I'm looking for this type of a product. I have someone. We'll try and find something for them or we'll work together because they trust us and they know that there's someone in their system who didn't have the right landlord who they need to come to us and we can do that for. So in a lot of instances, this has got our name on it because we are a company that does this for ourselves, but we also have 20 plus outside owners that we do this for as well. And it's the same process because they're working with the same manager. I want to get a little bit deeper on the tenant too, if you don't mind, Marco. Yeah. There's scumbags in all walks of life, and there is absolutely no possible way to ensure that someone's not going to... Bernie Madoff was living in a beautiful tower in New York and turned out to be a thief. There's no way that you can be 100% accurate. You have to have feel. We've got feel. Are we perfect? Hell no. Are we 90 plus percent perfect annually? Yeah really, really good numbers. And that's what this is. This is a people business. And sometimes you get a gut that you should take a chance. And sometimes you should get a gut that you shouldn't. And that's what we're going to do. And the way that our system is built, and we have this in front of your folks, your counselors, is there's some guarantees with our rents in year one to make sure the year that you do take ownership of this property, we guarantee that the rent is being paid. And that those are things that we bring to the table because we take this seriously. Like I'm a former executive of a publicly traded company who now has my own small business. We run with a great deal of sophistication and we understand how important it is if you're believing in us, Marco, and your staff and your clients are buying stuff from us. We want to perform. We don't want you to have one property and move on. We want you to do the opposite. We want you to do one, feel good about it and say, I want to go back to Frank and Cindy. I want to do more with them. I love the product. I love what's happening. All of this kind of works in an ecosystem. And that's our goal, to satisfy you as the customer, but to satisfy our residents as well. That's it. It's kind of an integrity-based product that kind of self-serves itself. You can't please everybody, but if everyone's getting good service, they tend to stay, even if they're a little irritated from time to time. The other side of it is if you show them respect, they do trash it from time to time when they move out. It's very rare. As we've gotten really good at this system and getting the right people in the door, We'll identify problematic people and we might say, hey, we'll throw 500 bucks at them if they'll leave a brood and swept on the way out. That's way cheaper than dealing with something. The other thing is if you deal with integrity in the entire time, you may have to help them on the way out. Maybe they've lost a job. Maybe something negative has happened. And we work through it with them and we say, look, we understand. Let's leave the place broom swept. Help us on the way out. Let's do those little things. And this is stuff that our property manager brings to my attention, but we'll bring it to your attention too. And it becomes collaborative. So you can take a situation and neutralize it by being proactive and helping the people. So that's what we have seen is most of these folks are very good citizens. Thanks for the detail, Frank. And one of the key points that you said that I totally agree with is that 
this is a people business. I mean, we're dealing with humans. We're dealing with people. And if you just can relate and understand, be firm but fair, you go a long way. And I think that's what makes good property managers is they're firm but fair. And they just know they're dealing with people. They're not just dealing with robots. So well said. I'll give two quick examples. When I brought Cindy in about three years ago, she started getting thank you letters. I've been doing Section 8 for a decade. Nobody got thank you letters. She did because she's firm, but she's really personable and she gives them what they need. And this is an anomaly, but I'll say it anyways. I was bringing my parents out like three or four years ago, showing them properties, and I showed them one that a woman had just moved into with Section 8. The woman hugged me in front of my mom (laughs) and said, this is the nicest house I've ever lived in. Again, these houses, if you're buying an investment property, these are not houses that we're going to live in. These are houses that are built for return and they're built for residents. And they're built in a way that allows them to afford to be there. But as us as investors, we get what's most important, return. That's what we're going for. This is return gain. And that's how these things are built. Got it. Well, let's talk about those properties. Properties vary, obviously, from market to market, as you mentioned at the very beginning, and very much so by neighborhood. So describe a typical property in the neighborhoods that you're operating in right now. Sure. So Richmond, as Marco said in the beginning, is old historically for America. Most of it was burned to the ground in the late 1800s at the end of the war. So most of the stuff that we deal with here is built in the 1900s and later. There's kind of two segments. There's the stuff that was built like 1900 to 1925. And then there's kind of a crummy period from 25 post-World War II. Then it kind of picks up around World War II after, so like 1945. So most of our stuff is built in those two pockets, like 1900, 1925, or like post-World War II. So what we do, we have 25 people on staff. I have a Class A license. We renovate and sell tons of homes. If you go and kind of find out who we are in our marketplace, we do tons of renovation. And we can renovate million-dollar-plus houses. So what we do is we go in and then we look at whatever house we're inheriting, no matter the age, and we fix the things that are going to potentially be albatross going forward. Roofs, windows, we renovate to a standard. And that's what we do. We also renovate to a standard that's easy to repair. I have a video that Marco and his team might share with you, but one silly thing, like there's hardwood floors in a lot of our houses that we inherit because that's how they used to build them in the old days. So instead of going back and refinishing the hardwood floor, we stain it with a deck paint and then we put a poly over it. It's about one-sixth the cost to do that versus to finish it like in a house that I live in, you know, that's been sanded and poly. Why is that relevant? It's easier to maintain. If it gets screwed up, it's cheaper to fix. And it's built. The house is built and renovated to a standard that allows it to perform. As one of my friends says, it's built for battle. It is. It's built to put people in it who can live there successfully, safely, over time, but they don't call you every three days with a maintenance request. That's how we build the house. I hope that answers what you were looking for. Yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. So that gives us kind of an idea of the quality that you're putting in. Do you want to take us 30 seconds and just touch on what a typical scope might look like? I mean, we don't need to get into the details of this because it's pretty standard across a lot of markets, but if you want to just brag about it for a second, that would be great. Sure. So every house you inherit is a little bit different because we're buying inventory that was already here in most instances. So we take what's there and we make sure everything has at least five years of life left on it or we replace it. If we don't think the roof has between five and 10 years left, we replace it. If it has HVAC, now not all of our units have HVAC and it doesn't affect the rents, but if it has HVAC, we make sure it's got five to 10 years left on it or it's replaced. So a lot of the CapEx is done before you're going to take ownership of it because 
we want to make sure that the expense is done before you take ownership of the house. So give us an idea of the price range of the low end and the high end of what are essentially these turnkey rental properties. And then also, what is the monthly rent on that same range of property, just so we have an idea of what the ratio is with prices and rent? So I don't know where the market is going, but as where the market is now, mm. ninety to $100,000 is the low end, and somewhere in the neighborhood of about one seventy-five is the high end. If you said, hey, Frank, what's your median or average? I would probably say hundred and fifty grand. So something smack in the middle of that. We are bringing almost everything to you guys with an 18.5% or better cash on cash return. So if we are getting 1300 bucks a month for rent, that's going to sell for between 140 and 150 in most instances. So if I just had to say an example, it rents for 1300, I sell it to you for something in the neighborhood of like 140 grand. And if you do cash on cash and cap rate, those numbers are very, very favorable. We didn't really talk about this. Our taxes are really low in our market, like in compared to if you go further north in the Northeast, Pennsylvania, New York State, we're a fraction of those. Like our mill rate is $1. twenty per thousand. So our rents right where they are, but the lower taxes gives it a really nice return. Okay, that's great. And I think I just want to highlight one interesting thing that relates to what you just said. You know, a lot of investors are trying to shoot for that 1%, exactly 1% rent to price ratio. You won't find that all the time in every market. Markets fluctuate and change. And also those ratios change from neighborhood to neighborhood. If you go into better quality neighborhoods, that ratio goes down. So the point I'm trying to make is that you don't have to have a 1% RV ratio. It can be higher, it could be lower, and you can still have a great property with solid cash flow and good returns. And you just highlighted some examples where you have strong cap rates, strong cash on cash returns. But you're dealing with, let's say, $140,000, $150,000 property that rents for thirteen or 1400 a month. That's not a 1% rent-to-value ratio. That's 0.8, maybe 0.9%. And that's okay. As long as it's above 0.7, typically, you're going to have favorable cash-on-cash returns. And the other thing to consider, too, just to look at things holistically, is consider the market in the neighborhood you're in because you may have very strong appreciation potential over the next one, two, three, four, five years, which will far make up for the cash flows that you get from that property with a better rent-to-value ratio. So don't be penny-wise and pound-foolish, as they say. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out because some people might be listening to this thinking, oh, well, it's a $150,000 property. Yeah, it's a fantastic rental, but it, quote-unquote, only rents for $1,300 or $1,350 a month. Don't be short-sighted. You got to look at the whole picture. I think you said two things that are hugely important. One of them is that initial number, right? The initial number is kind of like the teaser rate to get you in the door. What's the turnover rate of the person that you're working with? Like, are those tenants going to stay? And if you have a five-year tenant, how much do you raise the rents annually? So what we usually do with a Section 8 tenant is we leave it flat for year one. So they live there for 24 months before we raise it. Then we usually raise it somewhere between 5 and 6%. And then it's 3 to 5% every year after that, and it all works. So like, if you look at kind of what our projections look like long-term, like that rate is a little bit lower on the front end, but we're not turning over the tenant. And then year three, year four, year five, year six, we're getting fractions of money more per month. We average 4.5% raise on rent per year. That's our average across 300 houses. So that makes a huge difference long-term, and that's what you're going for is that year three rent that year six rent when you haven't turned somebody over, that's a sweet spot. 
So I just want to talk about property management here and wrapping up. But before we leave the whole content topic of properties, what would you say are the types of neighborhoods that these are in? If you were just to grade them, and I know this varies from person to person when I ask this question, but just generally speaking, are these like B, B plus type neighborhoods? What would you call them? I think they're solid C's. There might be some B's. There really are no D's or F's. But they're working class neighborhoods that are seven blocks away from B, B pluses. That's where this stuff is. Okay, perfect. Let's finish up with property management because management is very important, especially for people who are investing out of state or long distances away. Just briefly describe the property management services. I mean, it's pretty common from market to market, but just touch upon it and then tell us what those terms are under your company's management. Sure. Here's why we sell properties and why we offer property management. It gives us as a business another resource and it's just another tentacle to business. Why should you consider us for property management versus somebody else? Here's a bunch of reasons. If we're rented through Section 8 or some other program that's on like some kind of a voucher or assistance, we already have the relationship with them and we're already collecting rent. There's no ramp up period for you. We just transfer it going from our bank account to your bank account if you take ownership. So it's instantaneous. We do direct to seller marketing and advertising. We buy 300, 400 houses a year. We've already bought the property. We have a relationship with the property. We understand what buttons to push and what not to with every single property. So we made the decisions at the turnover. It's kind of like if you take your car to an auto mechanic, they tell you the next guy, oh, that last guy was an idiot. He wasn't necessarily an idiot. He just had a different perspective on it. But whenever someone calls the last guy an idiot, I usually know I'm getting billed way more. (laughs) That's the beauty of sticking with us is we understand what the decision metrics was that went into making these choices. And because of that, if we're managing it for us or if we're managing it for you, we're going to make the best possible decision because we know the property. I think this makes a huge difference, Marco. Nobody in my business knows if I own the property or somebody else owns the property. They don't know. So when they go out and they do a service call, they think I own it even if I don't. And I've got 20 plus employees, as I said, it said earlier. Like To them, it's just another one of our rentals. They treat them all the same. They treat it like it's mine. And that's a benefit for you because my staff is not going to gouge or do other things if they think it belongs to me because I signed the paycheck. So it's one of those things that works kind of hand in hand. And I think it's a really nice thing. Like I mentioned earlier, we have several dozen outside owners that we work with. It's a really good relationship. We stand behind what we do. I said it's a people business on the other side. It's a people business with you. If you decide to work with us and you want to feel comfortable, call us, talk to us, ask questions. That's allowed. It's encouraged. Feel comfortable. This is your money and your investment. And we stand behind our product. Is it perfect? Is it all like marbles and travertine? No. Is it something that does a great return? Yeah. It's where all of my money is invested. And I think what we do on the property management side, the property and the tenant make a lot of sense. Property management is the one who exposes or for bad or realizes the good. And if you've got someone who already knows the tenant, already brought him in, it's going to make your process of collecting so much better. I almost don't want to ask you this question because it almost doesn't matter when you have good properties, good neighborhoods, and good management. But do you have any stats on occupancy rates or turnover times, anything like that? I know a lot of property managers keep track of that kind of data. Yeah, right now we're just over 96% occupied. And I'm talking about this while everybody's on lockdown and nobody can go anywhere. And we're like, we're in the middle of COVID. We ran 0% vacancy for about eight months in a row. So if we have a vacant unit, we don't bring it to you guys until it's turned. 
Once we have a vacant unit, we usually have a tenant in place within 12 days. From advertising to move-in is 12 days. What we will normally do is we're already looking ahead at July move-outs. We're looking 60 to 90 days in the future, and then we start advertising 30 days ahead or 45 days ahead. In many instances, if we have a turn, there's a tenant in there within a week. It's usually days, but within a week is almost guaranteed. That's very quick. That's good. Very good. You mentioned one thing. I want to just hit it. We get 121% of market rate on our rent. And I had my CFO build that out. And the reason that we're able to do that for similar properties is because we utilize the vouchers. The downside of the vouchers is the negative connotation. The upside is they're willing to pay. And because of that, you get guaranteed rent and it's way better than what the neighbors are paying around because of the fact that it has that voucher with it. And from our perspective, we love it. Guaranteed. And not only is it guaranteed, it's more than we would get if we found a market rate tenant. So it all works. So I'll point out one quick thing to address. Maybe some people are thinking about, and just to piggyback on what you just said, some people might be thinking, well, what if I lose the Section 8 tenant and one day down the road, be it a year or 10 years down the road, I want to rent to just a plain vanilla traditional market tenant, not a Section 8 tenant, because it's my choice to do that. The interesting thing about that is the property still makes sense. It still cash flows. It still generates a good rate of return, even if you're just leasing it to a normal traditional market tenant. So it's not that you have to have a Section 8 tenant. It's just you're getting a bump or a bonus. That's right. Yeah. And the choice is yours. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff, Frank. Any other comment you want to make about properties or the market before I say thank you? (laughs) I think we've done it. Thank you for your time. Yeah, you did a great job. Thank you for all the detail and we'll get this out very soon. So thanks very much for everything you guys do, Frank. My pleasure. Thank you. To learn more about the Richmond, Virginia market and more specifically about investment opportunities that are available there now or coming down the pipeline, be sure to reach out to your investment counselor here. And if you don't have an investment counselor here, of course, fill out the form on our website. We will immediately assign you to somebody and you can have that conversation and we will certainly educate you at no cost. Just want to help you with the knowledge and the resources that you need in order to build your real estate portfolio and become successful at real estate investing. Of course, if you are new or you haven't read our ultimate guide to passive real estate investing, just go to either one of our websites and download that free report. There is no obligation. It is a fantastic primer and you will find it helpful. The other thing too is if you are new to real estate investing and you just want to get a direction and maybe a bit of a roadmap on how to proceed and move forward, then talk to one of our investment counselors about a strategy session. The benefit to you is that you're just going to get more clarity in what you should and maybe even shouldn't be doing just so you can be successful. And whether you're ready now or six months from now or a year from now, this will at least get you kind of into the loop and start building that relationship with your investment counselor. So it's probably a good idea. And even general questions about real estate investing, if you have those, by all means, reach out to us because that is what we love talking about is real estate and investing and the combination of the two. So remember to subscribe to the show if you haven't done so already. Just click the subscribe button, help us spread the word and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. We greatly appreciate that. Thanks for listening. See you on our next episode. Are you happy?
having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.